I'm Steve, and you know what? We we gave you your Cowboy Bebop. We gave you your Space Western, and now we're coming back with the real deal, Spaghetti Westerns. And I'm sure you're asking yourself, you're like, what, what, what could you possibly say about Spaghetti Westerns that I haven't heard a thousand times before? And that's a great question. <laughs> and the answer is probably jack shit. But let me tell you... We decided, you know, you, you can go with your Sergio Leone or your Sergio Carbucci or any other Sergio out there, but instead of choosing the classic Spaghetti Western directors, we're going to be coming at you with some guys that are much better known for doing anything but Spaghetti Westerns. Uh, and, and joining me is the, I guess, the president of the Sergio fan club. Sean Glennis is here. Hello. Sean, Desert Island Sergio, who you taking? <laughs> How many do I get to take? You just get, you just get one. It's a Desert oh, Island God. Sergio. I mean, Sergio Martino is one of a kind, but uh, uh, I gotta I gotta go with Corbucci because I've never seen any of his movies. So there's so much for me to to watch while I'm stuck on this island. <laughs> I like how this assumes that you've got like a, a projector or a Blu-ray uh -huh. player on this island. Why else would I take any of the other movies? I, maybe you're just like sitting there and he's he's just telling you about it. Yeah, torso over and over again uh, on this <laughs> island. Yeah. Carpucci's just like, hey, let me tell you about this great movie I made called The Django. I mean, the real Italian that you need to take to the beach is, uh, of course, of course uh, Joe D'Amato. Yeah, Joe D'Amato is the guy you definitely want on the beach, uh, especially if you just want like dudes with their dicks out. You know, that's that's the guy for you on the beach. Well, yeah, he's he's got a lot of sexy beach movies, sexy and heavy finger quotes there. But he's got a lot of beach movies where people aren't wearing clothes. Sexy and, and bolded italics. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm just trying to think like I want to meet a guy who's just like all I can do to get sexual gratification is jack off to Joe D'Amato films. Like, who's that guy? <laughs> I'm sure there was one. And his name is Jack Easton. Jack, how you doing? <laughs> oh, it's great to be here, Steve. Where where else am I going to get this quality of banter? That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, how, who else in your life is going to fucking throw a Joe D'Amato jerk-off insult at you? That's, no, that's true. That is you, Steve. You are that guy for several people <laughs> at this point. Well done. <laughs> It's the only person in your life who's insulting you in, in very specific, unique ways. Yeah. Uh, specifically in ways that, you know, really don't apply to many people. Well, truly, what are we fucking doing? Well, uh... Get, getting back to D'Amato, I, I feel like it's sexy. Nah, people, he's not sexy. It's erotic. <laughs> erotic is what mm. Joe D'Amato does. Erotic is a very is wide that? umbrella. It is, but I, I've... I always associate like erotic. It feels like it has a little more class to me. It, well, you know that's, but the, the Italians just—it's erotic. The, I mean, he's the erotic knights of the living dead. Like, is that classy? It fucking isn't. But he has that. That's his. Could be, yeah. yeah. And he's not—it's—he's not necessarily a horny director either, because you kind of get the feeling when you're watching a Joe D'Amato movie that he's not even that into it. But he's like, here it is. That's for you. Enjoy it. All in focus. It's—it's it's definitely in focus. 
God. I mean, the big problem with those sex scenes is like it's just like the plot just stops there. It's not for it's not doing anything to further the plot of Joe DiMaggio movies. Meanwhile, you're just like, what's happening to this person? What's happening to this person? Can we get yeah. get this? It's a classic you know. porno issue. I'm always I'm always wondering. Yeah, <laughs> anytime I watch a Joe D'Amato movie, I'm deeply concerned with the yeah. plot. I, I'd say the only concern that I could muster watching a Joe D'Amato movie is when someone's getting like barebacked over a stump, and I'm like, "Damn, that's gotta hurt!" Like, yeah, it's just like grinding into your knees. There's plot considerations like all the way through Anthropophagus. I was like, "Like, is he a mon? Is he human? Is he a mon? I don't understand anything yeah. about what's happening in this movie." And huh. then they never tell you, so it's it's pretty good. Maybe Rob Zombie will do like a a, a sequel prequel thing. I, I mean, anything is possible. They do a prequel flashback, don't they, or something? Like he just looks like he's sunburned, but I, I don't know. <laughs> just, yeah. just, I like movies that ask big questions. Questions like, is this a monstrous cannibal or simply a man with bad skin who has trouble communicating, you know? And that's that's really what Joe D'Amato, he's he's working in that space. Yeah, Joe D'Amato could have made his own <laughs> Rain Man and it would have been banned in 14 countries. <laughs> if only. We can dream. We can dream. But, you know, strangely enough, we're not talking about Joe D'Amato this week, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Uh, although, if, if we could talk about Anthropophagus every single week. He's got to made some westerns. <laughs> Let me tell you about a movie called Horrible, but it's actually not so bad. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, no, we're not doing that. Uh, but we are going to talk about Mario Bava, and uh, I think he's a little more critically acclaimed, sadly, though, because Joe, Joe deserves his place in the sun. But uh, Mario Bava, certainly not a man known for his spaghetti westerns um <laughs> he's kind of i mean he's he's like the guy when it comes to giallo films he's the guy when it comes to proto slashers peplum. uh he's kind of italian peplum <laughs> if you talk about like the italian peplum if you talk about like someone who is just this quintessential element of uh italian genre films specifically horror films in the 1960s and 70s, you got to talk about Mario Bava. Uh, a problem, though, that Mario Bava ran into specifically a little bit later on in, into his career. Uh, one thing you never want to be as an Italian filmmaker in the 1960s and 70s is overly efficient. And that sounds silly, but Bava said himself that sometimes a, a, a script would call for an exploding car, but, you know, they wouldn't have the money for the car, so he would use an exploding bicycle and just make it work. And producers loved him for that because he frequently came in under budget, even on his really big films like uh, Danger Diabolic, which we covered, was way, way, way under budget by like hundreds of thousands of dollars under budget. And that never happens. So people loved him. But then what would happen is he would basically get dragged into projects that were either completely underfunded or in such rough shape that he would have to do everything in his power to fix them, but sometimes when something's too fucked, it's too fucked. And here we have Roy Colt and Winchester Jack, written by uh, one of the greatest bards of our time, Mario DiNardo. You big DiNardo head, Jack? Oh, yeah. Have I ever not brought him up? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Jack's, he's living for Denards, man. Yeah. That's, that's all he cares about. 
And so DiNardo also wrote, uh, uh, oh God, what's it called? Five Dolls for the August Moon. Yeah. Uh, another another Bava classic, and it, which is not a bad movie by any stretch. I don't think it's great, but no. it's it's solid. Yeah. But it was a movie that Bava was brought into rescue from the just complete disaster. Okay. So he came in, he had to like, you know, uh, redo the script a little bit, goes in, makes a functional movie out of what was an absolute trash script. So he fixes that. And how does the studio reward him? What a great question. Did they give him an amazing film or did they give him a bunch of money to make a passion project? No. They said, Hey, you know, that guy that wrote that dog shit script, <laughs> he wrote another one and it's called Roy Colt and Winchester Jack. And Mario Baba goes, wow, that guy sucks shit. And I also hate Westerns. <laughs> I also hate Westerns. So would it be okay if I at least rewrote this? And you know what the producers said? They said, no, it's Friday and we start shooting on Monday. So no, <laughs> you got what you got. Make it work, buddy. So now we have Mario Baba, famously a man who hates Westerns who did not get to rewrite a script by a, uh, a, a script writer who he also famously hated and thought was a pile of shit because he was a pile of shit. And this is how we get Roy Colt and Winchester Jack, which I guess Mario Bava did his best to save by turning it into a complete piss take, even though originally it was written as a serious film. Yeah. I mean, knowing, knowing all this stuff, it's, it's really not that bad a movie. <laughs> well, well done Bava, frankly. What's funny is, uh, it, it's really not that bad. Um, what's funny though is if you would have told me, like, you know, say I was a uh, film goer in 1970 who really was like up on uh, Italian cinema and was into like seeing what Bava's career was was doing uh, was blossoming into. Uh, if you would have told me he was doing a Western, um, I mean, I would have, or, or like, I know it's not his only Western. He did a couple others, but, uh, even just the thought of, of a Baba spaghetti Western is like, it seems like a dream come true. Like he just, uh, you know, uh, we've we've seen what he can do with like horror stuff and Gothic, uh, atmospheres and, and to see that, like, to see what his like <clears throat> uh, very strong skill set could do with a genre that is very much about like visuals and atmosphere and tone um, seems like a home run, and uh, it's not a home run. It's it's like it's not even a ground rule double. It's like a little like bloop single, but it's it's not bad. I mean, I think <laughs> like it's not bad, but like the thing you you need to know about it is that it is a comedy and uh i think uh tim lucas the one of his uh scholars said that not even just a, a comedy but like a specifically like a farce or a satire of the leone spaghetti westerns um so it, it's not just like oh let's see what another spaghetti western is doing with these uh you know various tropes and and styles mm -hmm. but it's very distinctly a comedy and there's you know uh, there's like a relationship kind of drama, like, you know, a situational kind of comedy uh, within a, a partnership within the story uh, that is like, you know, it, it I, it's what I imagine uh, it, 
a lot of these these like seventies Italian comedies that just look dreadful <laughs> uh, to watch in their entirety are like just you know a little snippet of in Roy Colt and Winchester Jack, yeah. but. But yeah, this isn't like this isn't exactly what you might think of in terms of a spaghetti western by Mario Pava. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's, in, it's, in terms it's, of comedy duos, you could do worse. You've always got Bava's Doctor Goldfit and the the Bikini Bomb Girls or whatever it's called, <laughs> the Bikini Bombs, which I think is maybe the worst Bava I've ever seen, and has a bunch of of exactly that Italian comedy you're talking about, which the Italians have made some very, very fantastic comedies, and they made a, a lot of very not fantastic comedies, too. Not everyone could be like Pietro Germi. So, you know, a lot of the other ones were just like, it's a saucy guy, and he's up to no good again, and it would run for 97 minutes inexplicably. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting one because this it, it it's a well photographed film in terms of mm-hmm. like its composition and stuff. But there's really there's very little here you could tack on to say is representative of Bava at all. There's uh, it's it's it doesn't have like the kind of like zany lighting schema that he usually employs. It's there's no supernatural elements whatsoever. There's there's very little of like the grit and stuff that would kind of react like this was made. Almost, almost just before he went off and made like a Bay of Blood, which was kind of his like "fuck you" film, you know, where he's just like, "I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go and take some of my own money and like just redefine horror cinema in my own little corner. I'm gonna make everyone really mad, and then ten years later, everyone will be copying me <laughs> shamelessly." Um, you know, but it's like this. This movie is sort of like weird. It, it makes sense. It's just a rescue effort. It's, in my understanding, I think like every day they pretty much just wrote the movie. <laughs> they like showed up every morning and they just they shot whatever. And it, you know, there's no real steady flow or anything to it. It is just a series of most mostly just fist fights mm-hmm. uh, extensively. The bad guy spends most of the time on the toilet or in bed, <laughs> uh, shivering or sick. <laughs> uh, it, it's yeah. It, it's kind of like just really it's it's very difficult to get excited about this one but at the same time it, you know I, honestly it's really a, it's not terrible i think that the two leads pull together enough there's enough of an interesting tension or or at least a, a poking fun at the kind of those those standard dynamics of of the western yeah that it's sort of you know you know there, there's enough here to kind of string you through and it runs you know like 85 minutes so you know it, again this seems to be just bava coming through in a clinch just like you know he he did it again well done uh stop making him have to do this <laughs> there there is one like distinctly mario bava gag here and i think like which one if you're asking yourself what does mario bava comedy look like and it's it's got to be when they're inside of this this whorehouse and there's like a silhouette of a woman dancing and it's just this like white kind of semi-transparent wall and this silhouette a woman dancing and then the wall gets broken and it turns out that it's just like some disgusting old guy <laughs> with a cardboard cutout of a woman taped to his back and he's just <laughs> just dancing around. So yeah, that's that's pretty much the only distinctly Baba moment for me. You should know, uh, there are a couple other gags I want to mention, but uh, you should know that one of the primary actors is uh, named Charles Southwood in case you doubted uh this being a satire on uh the leone 
<laughs> westerns. Um, but uh, uh, there's two gags in this movie that are <clears throat> mainly conveyed through visuals that are just really funny because they're still used contemporarily. Um, one is like this saloon speech uh, that actually has like pretty quite elegant like camera movement but um this guy's like giving a speech and then you know asks for the reaction of like this crowded bar and the camera zooms out and it's completely empty uh after we had seen it like packed um and the other one is like uh we have seen this this couple uh like in the brothel uh having sex and then like shaking the bed and, and then like there's a there's a call back to it but instead it's just like cleaning something, but you get that like <laughs> opening shot on the, on the, like the bed post. Um, it's just like, Oh yeah, this is st- still used in a lot of like PG 13 movies. Oh yeah. No, there's, I mean, there's, there's certainly some moments here and you could tell that he basically took the script, tore it to pieces and then just, just tried to give us the most threadbare plot humanly possible. So you could have, a half dozen decent gags and make it work. And it works. Like he's exceptionally good as a director at just understanding film on a very base level. So he knows how to deliver, like what, what is the bare minimum for a, a, a Western pastiche comedy? And and this is the answer right here. We yeah. have it. Yeah. Um, and also so, Baba yeah. <laughs> leans into, I mean, it, compared to the, the next two we'll talk about, I mean, this kind of leans into the, the West, the American West as like an adventurous wonderland. You know, it's it's a place for, you know, ripping yarns, uh, whereas the <laughs> subsequent films are much more fatalist and, and brutal in their, their depiction. This is kind of, yeah, you know, men were men and they become friends and they become enemies and they become friends again all in the in the, the midst of a grand hype you know heist and caper um it's it's it goes through all these kind of motions in some places you you'd almost wish that it was a little bit more serious or or maybe a little bit more structured mm-hmm. in the way that the two leads there is kind of an interesting dynamic between them because one of them is basically a dyed in the wool uh, winchester jack is basically he's he's just a he wants to be an outlaw and that's all he does and roy colt goes on he wants to go straight he's just sick of you know lack of respect and it's just too much work so he goes straight and then he kind of from going straight veers straight back into you know running his own little kind of gang like his own little like things and eventually you know he's right back at uh heists again you know i mean they're all on this gold chase but he's he's ostensibly hired uh to to kind of bring the gold in but it seems like he has no intention of actually doing that he's probably just going to steal it as well you know so there's these dynamics that you know play into it 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 doesn't feel as much like a spoof of a leone or any of the other ones so much as it kind of acknowledges the same ingredients but it never really cultivates them with anything much because every single scene mostly just breaks down to something goofy happening where you know Mm -hmm. just these two guys are enemies in this scene and then in the next scene they're friends but there's a different enemy and so on it just kind of plays off each other over and over again without really doesn't really cultivate anything long term you know it's just it's not that film but you can kind of see i you know i don't know about uh, dinardi's original script like was there some more of that in there possibly but maybe it didn't work the way he had it written either so yeah oh well <laughs> man it must have been really easy to be a screenwriter in italy in the 1970s 
Can you imagine like your whole thing is just like, I, I wrote something and it's absolute dog shit and everyone hates it. And they're like, yes, we're producing this. This is what we want to do. How, how do you get to that position? I have no fucking clue. But here we are. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't really have a lot to say about this one. I guess it's like... Yeah, I think we covered it. <laughs> we pretty much covered it. It's it's a curiosity. If you're a Bava completionist, I guess, go for it. Um, I mean, we, uh, we, could, otherwise, mention, we could mention very briefly, there, there's a semi-feminist edge to it. We have a woman who comes out yeah. on top. Again, it's very threadbare. She's Native American, but she obviously isn't by <laughs> the casting. There's no attempt for any authenticity there. Right. Uh, it's kind of interesting, though, that she's one of those kind of basically a prostitute, but honestly kind of like parlays that into a grand command. She, she turns out to be much cannier than our two heroes. It's nothing revolutionary, but it's it's maybe a little bit more for a woman to do than in maybe some of the other films we'll talk about here where they're more relegated to more traditional roles it's it's kind of there but you know it's it's still there's nothing here that you you probably wouldn't encounter in a more structured format eh, without venturing too far i feel like staying even within spaghetti westerns you could find similar elements so yeah mm -hmm. well you know why don't we talk about a, a little bit more of a traditional spaghetti western and uh, in 1977, our boy Sergio Martino, who did All the Colors of the Dark and shit, a, a whole bunch of amazing movies, he decided, you know what, let's let's do a spaghetti western, and it's going to be called A Man Called Blade. And why do they call this man Blade? And the answer is because he uses a hatchet and mm -hmm. a gun. <laughs> and, and this isn't a tomahawk or is it a hatchet? This is plaguing me. I, I think it's just a hatchet, but I think it's supposed think to be it's a tomahawk. Just a hatchet. Yeah, I, I, don't I don't know what it's supposed to be. Why? Do, why is he not a man called Hatchet or a man called Tomahawk? A or, very good question. Yeah, hundred percent. Or, or just, or just Menage. The the, which I what I what does that mean? I don't know. I mean that's that's the original Italian title. Maybe that means blade or hatchet or something in in Italian. I'm not sure, but. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't understand, but sure, fuck it. Who cares? Uh, this is interesting because out of the three movies we're covering this week, this is probably the most traditional spaghetti Western. And mm -hmm. if you really want to break down the spaghetti Western, you got your dusty spaghetti Westerns, you got your snowy spaghetti Westerns, and in between you got your muddy spaghetti Westerns. And this <laughs> is a muddy fucking spaghetti Western. Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually... Um, there, there's a lot of like, uh, foggy weather and rain and it, it's, it's just kind of like a very precipitous, um, movie and, uh, actually, um, the, the reason for like all of this, like atmosphere, I mean, besides the locale naturally being like muddy, but, um, Martino, like the only so this came this came at that like pretty close to the end of the of the uh, spaghetti western cycle like so th this was like one of the last like five spaghetti westerns made um and uh he, they're like w one of the like the only um uh like western like village setup that for a movie like a studio western village thing that that martino could uh could access was this place that they shot this and uh it was like run down and just like falling apart 
and um so they used a bunch of like fog to like cover it up um which like kind of gives it this other quality like a very poetic quality about like the end of you know not just the spaghetti western but the industry in italy as well um so it it has a an interesting dimension to it extra textually yeah um and it's it's got yeah it's got a really unique look to it because it it's it's got that kind of you know that foggy look to it and then also uh the the main character the the titular man called blade he's like the the poor man's franco nero like yeah, if Franco exactly Nero, right. Martino cast him. <laughs> he looks like if Franco Nero just went on like a two week bender and you dragged him out of a fucking dumpster, uh, you would have this guy. <laughs> yep, yep. And it's, it's exactly great though. Like, yeah, yeah it, it's like perfect for the role because he dresses like shitty crocodile Dundee. He's perpetually caked in mud, and then yeah, he's just. Shitty Franco Nero. Which is funny because, I mean, it is uh, one critique I know I've heard of this movie is that it treads narratively a lot of or shares a lot of DNA with Kioma, which is a Franco Nero film, uh, Castellari Mm -hmm. directed. Um, So, yeah, you know, but he wasn't available. They didn't want to pay him or whatever. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's it's sort of a a strange film. I mean, Sean, you mentioned at one point kind of like McCabe and Mrs. Miller as a yeah a touchstone for this and there is there's certainly that sense to that it song um, is a big part the of the song yes yeah yeah it's mm-hmm. got the soundtrack it's got these recurring songs which are very odd and portentous they, they're kind of kind of like um they're wrong obviously of leonard cohen and, and mccabe miss miller also i think maybe like bob dylan and pat garrett and billy the kid that kind mm-hmm. of troubadour thing mm-hmm. the only problem is that they only have one song so yeah, it's pretty yeah. much the same song keeps coming in over and over again telling you the exact same information nothing has changed yeah um, but it does give it a very kind of unique kind of a sound as well um and yeah it's it, this one has a much more advanced plot certainly than uh Roy Colton Winchester Jack there's like there's some reversals and and unforeseen twists in this one as a uh, blade navigates the basically rotting carcass of American industry it's sort of like uh there's there's a rich guy he basically ultimately wants to get revenge on but then the rich guy gets fucked over by his own family in the middle of it complicating things um it's this again like the that classic kind of fatalist vision of you know everyone's out for themselves and you know blade will make do the best he can in the midst of it um with much gore and so on along the way much more kind of gritty kind of a thing um but again it's it's just one of those films that for me kind of lacks a hook has a hatchet it doesn't isn't really have as much of a hook for me (laughs) uh, as compared like you know corbucci always had like a, a hook like some kind of a gag you know like Django had his coffin or the great silence is just literally the grimmest fucking movie in existence you know <laughs> things that really kind of distinguish them uh, this one feels somewhat well worn for me it's it's kind of like okay you know there's nothing here I haven't seen before so it's all solid but you know it's kind of I guess like that main actor like it's not quite Franco Nero it's just like it's, it's another yeah. guy who looks somewhat like him the final showdown though I think is is quite a uh uh it's quite a a good achievement uh within martino's uh filmography oh yeah absolutely no that that looks amazing and i mean even even if this is the 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 kirkland brand vodka 
of <laughs> spaghetti westerns like it's it's undeniable that there's there's still moments here and that's that's really just a testament to Sergio Martino who is I mean he's fucking incredible the guy can can just he can he can turn shit into gold pretty easily and, and uh, I should also mention that um, this was uh, the the second western that Martino did and the first one that he did was his first movie like his first real feature uh which was arizona colt returns which was a sequel to arizona colt um and it's not very good (laughs) um uh as you might imagine um he doesn't really have like uh, a vision yet um but uh, it, it is kind of like interesting to see these two movies as like see where like martino has grown since then but also like him coming back to the western like right this spaghetti western like right before it ends um so Mm -hmm. it's definitely of interest for the martino heads yeah this this is one where i would say you know seek it out it's it's streaming on tubi it's easy to access or you can get a copy from sean glennis that has hard-coded swedish subtitles subtitles (laughs) yeah (laughs) Really, really enjoyed that. Really adds to the experience, you know. Reminds reminds you this is not in America, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. And they don't look hard coded, like, which makes it even worse. <laughs> yeah, that that was actually the worst part for me because I spent a good twenty minutes like trying to reconfigure my Plex. It's like, why are these Swedish subtitles? And I was like, oh, look at the actual name of the of the file I am playing. This is Sean Glennis's fault. A little peek behind the curtain here. Uh, yeah, a little, little, little behind the scenes. This is this is how the the sausage is made here at Optimus Vaccine. <laughs> the Swedes know um, how to make those. Yeah, they they sure do. If also if you're like ripping fucking DVDs or Blu-rays and you're and you have hard coded subs, you're a fucking monster. What is wrong with you, <laughs> Jesus Christ? You think you're doing the world a service? You're not. Yeah, it was. It'd be better if you didn't do that. Anyways, yeah, this is this is a a, a good movie. It's worth, actually, it's worth searching out. It kind of reminds me of one note about uh, Roy Colt that we didn't mention is that uh, uh, there's apparently like less than a dozen. This is according to to sources from the industry back then, but like um, or who were present then. But apparently like less than a dozen prints of the English dub of that Baba film were struck. And so wow. um, it's it's interesting to watch Roy Culp because you basically have to watch it with uh, in the original Italian language. Um, and I mean, which is not a problem. And I think Tim Lucas says that some of the some of the jokes are definitely um uh, made for the Italian language, but it's it's uh, interesting because I was like, oh, of course this is going to have English dub. Nope, nope, not at all. You know, you know, it's also interesting too that I mean, we were talking about how Martino sort of, you know, he started off his career working in spaghetti westerns, and then he was able to kind of cruise in at the very end of spaghetti westerns run and and do another film, and. Another guy who got his start doing spaghetti westerns, our boy Lucio Fulci, and uh, he he revisited it. I wouldn't say frequently, but with some frequency throughout his career, and that kind of brings us to the Four of the Apocalypse from 1975, which, while not at the very end of when spaghetti westerns were around, it's kind of near the end of that of that lifespan. And it's odd because 
certainly Fulci did his fair share of genre work in, in horror and thrillers and Jello and things like that. But he was not a guy known for his Westerns, but this might be one of his more interesting films. I don't know if strong is the right word, but he, this, it feels like deeply personal. Like it, 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 <laughs> it seems like for a guy who pretty much cut his teeth making horror movies and is known for just making these splatter flicks, it seems like he has a really deep emotional connection to the four of the apocalypse, which is odd and not something I expected. It's it's lands in a strange kind of section in Fulci's career, actually one that I'm I'm actually not very familiar with, um, because this came really just a little after Don't Torture Duckling, which is arguably maybe Fulci's most. Uh, well, it's an editorializing film. It's it's actually a, a giallo, but with with quite a significant element of personal outrage in it, and a really great film for it. Um, and then he kind of like right after that, he made his White Fang adaptation, two White Fang adaptations oh, yeah. back to back. <laughs> and then he made Four of the Apocalypse, and then he made Dracula in the Provinces, which is actually reportedly oh, Fulci's favorite of his own films. Apparently, I've never seen it. Um, <laughs> I said the movie no one's seen. Yeah, that yeah, one's his that, favorite. The one he's favorite. And then another film called My Sister in Law, which again I have never I've never seen, but apparently it's just like Edviga Finesh. Uh, nudity mm. fest and then went straight and then kind of went into have to track um, that one down yeah but went into like mm -hmm. murder to the tune of seven black notes which is mostly known as the psychic in the u.s and that really kind of like kicked off to zombie and essentially to the string of the horror films that really kind of define Fulci's career for everyone so he kind of you know he'd done uh, spaghetti westerns prior to this uh, he would revisit them periodically throughout around this time though he was kind of more like the you know, he had made a giallo he'd made some kind of like psychosexual films like psychedelic almost like lizard in a woman's skin so he's kind of like he ever it was always gory like Fulci was never subtle i don't i can't think of any phase of his career where he was particularly like reserved but whatever he did he jumped into um, well, yeah, For the Apocalypse is a curious one because more so than anything, this is a guy kind of like we talked about like Bava's film being very much like the caper adventure boy's own kind of like vision of, of the American frontier. Manaha is kind of like a tale of personal tragedy or personal revenge and kind of like a small community and then four of apocalypse is is literally it is apocalyptic almost in its sensibilities it basically seems to kind of like eke out a vision of the of the american frontier as just utterly brutal beyond reasoning uh, chaotic catastrophic um you know, which comes with it basically just follows four kind of random people who only know each other because they end up in a jail cell because of a corrupt marshal who throws them in together because uh, while he's like staging a coup or something in the town. And then he just kind of like chucks them out of the town. They decide they'll just ride together and then they just basically witness a whole bunch of awful things. And that's that's mostly the movie. It's a weird kind of a, like a, uh, a shaggy dog story kind of a film. It doesn't really have a structured narrative at all. It kind of moves from set piece to set piece. Um, almost like an Altman-esque, but certainly not refined in the way that Altman would make make his films, you know. Um, mm -hmm. very like Steve, like you said at the beginning, like maybe not successful, but really interesting. And you know, that's kind of yeah. 
how this film is. It's it's such an strange film to sit through. It is simultaneously like I while I was watching my my feeling was like this is very interesting in parts, but also I feel like I've been watching this for six hours. It just has mm-hmm. that like really unsteady <laughs> rhythm to it. Um, so yeah, it, it gave me the same vibes as uh, I, I'm not as dreamlike, but it's similar to Fulci's Conquest. I think in a lot of ways, wherein. You're like, okay, there's some really amazing stuff here, but also I feel like the script has 14 pages and the, and the rest of the time, Fulci's like, I got to fill almost two hours. So we're going to have a lot of walking around, guys. We're just going to just, you know. <laughs> those, are, those are some of the best shots in the movie. Like, just like these I know, long. that's the thing. He it's can like get the, away with it. It's like the stone cold <laughs> sober version of conquest, though. It's it's very mm-hmm. like it it really yeah. is kind of like a, like literally a death march kind of a movie. It's sort of like the world for all their wide west you know vistas. You know, kind of like the world is a sort of closing in on these people, uh, and a love yeah. story kind of emerges amidst it, and then it just sort of like it's it's pushed back down and in again by external pressures. It's yeah, it's a really interesting film and and kind of one of those like it it pushed for like the spaghetti westerns often were kind of uh, revisionist westerns anyway, and they kind of like kind of, mm-hmm. as much as it and this is risky because there's always this concept of like in the night in 1990 clint eastwood made the first revisionist western with unforgiven and suggested that maybe the west was bad sometimes and there's like a whole school <laughs> of thought that like emerged from that and it's like actually you know if you watch it if you watch the john ford film he also suggested that the <laughs> west wasn't great all the time you know a lot a lot of the revisionism of the way of of the west was actually actually in the original movies if people actually paid attention to them which apparently a lot of people mm. didn't want to do but the spaghetti western certainly expedited that or certainly leaned heavily into the fatalist properties and corruption and these ideas of you know kind of it, where generally the classical movies because a lot of them were made under the production code had to at least suggest the you know restoration of order and moral code uh, the Italian movies were under absolutely no obligation to do that. So in many cases, mm-hmm. they had, you know, just be our heroes would be killed or they wouldn't fix things or the bad guys would win out or whatever. And this, you know, it, it feels very much like this is uh, Fulci's version, but Fulci seems to, if nothing else in this film, kind of like move away from the traditional heroes. Our our main hero in this, uh, played by Fabio Testi, is essentially just a gambler. He's not like a gun shooter, you know, he's not like a you know, a bounty hunter. He's not one of the like the, the no. men who like forged well, they the spend West. the first half of the movie without any weapons. Right, yeah. Right? Like they don't even have a gun until like forty five minutes. Exactly. In. So so it's kinda of like this strange film about the people who nor you know like when when the big when the big hero or villain wanders into the saloon to pick a fight like uh for the apocalypse is about the people sitting in the saloon already not the people going in and it, yeah. it's an interesting angle it, it does really uh kind of impart something unusual it's just that uh, the film itself 
partially because I think Fulci has difficulty regulating himself. I always find this with Fulci, and it, sometimes it's wonderful, and sometimes it's it's mm-hmm. a little bit disconcerting. You know, he he has some really serious dramatic heft in some moments, and then he can't help but like just keep picking at it. He's really pleased with it. I think I think Fulci sometimes you know got really into what he was doing because Fulci is is well noted kind of certainly was not a man to uh, hide his talents or or be modest about his talents he he felt he was an extremely talented director and he was correct mostly this is uh uh what's what's like kind of like novel about this movie i think uh is that it is people it's like a road movie right which like obviously is not new to the western but the spaghetti western i feel like is mostly like set in like this town and maybe maybe the studio system uh persuaded that like it just fostered that type of movie having it be like this centrally located place but uh but yeah this is kind of like a a journey which like you know you can't help but think of stagecoach watching especially you know you got like the the drunk jokester who's slightly you know more round than the hero um and it's it's interesting to see uh the tenderness come through in this movie but um one of the things that i think is interesting that i don't know uh, why but like so this was i think the th- the second of three west spaghetti westerns that fulci did and he actually did one uh his last one they died with their boots on or silver saddles uh was came after manaha man, the man who called blade so it was like literally one of like the last three or four spaghetti westerns made and um that and and massacre time his earlier one from the uh, mid sixties are both shot in scope and they both look great. Um, and I personally always love, uh, Fulci shooting in scope, but I always prefer it. Even if, you know, um, uh, some of his, uh, non-scope movies are, are still really great. Um, I just, he has such a, such a, an eye for composition. And, uh, I wonder like, before I saw the years, I was like, oh, for the apocalypse must have come later than the other two because it's not in scope. And yet it's in the middle. And I, I, I'm curious what that choice is or if it wasn't even about choice. Um, but it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, I feel like for Western, the scope is uh, Gotta. probably something that anyone's going to push for. But um, yeah, I, I, the 80s brought much more instability to just generally in equipment and, and support. So who knows? Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly his, his kind of like Martino as well. I mean, they're just, these guys could just make movies as well, frankly. Like these, these guys could just, pretty much you could drop them in a desert island mm-hmm. and they, you know, with nothing but a camera and one guy named Sergio. And Joe D'Amato's yeah, over exactly. there. Exactly. Joe D'Amato's already there. And he's already <laughs> two movies deep. But like these guys could like, they could just pull a movie out of almost nothing. Like, cause they were just so seasoned in their, in their profession. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's just this incredible level of proficiency and kind of, you know, shot composition and editing here is all just really like, it just uh, flows very, very smoothly. Um, and it's, it's just very pleasant. I guess what, what's interesting just again, with like four of apocalypse is how it, uh, you know, kind of like judders away from that. Sometimes he gets kind of like, he, he feels like he gets trapped in scenes sometimes, um, you know, some scenes go on forever, kind of like spoiler alert when when the woman dies, for example, and they have like they have a a baby born and a woman dying, and you know, 
one of the grand old dramatic tropes and the scene goes on for much longer than you would think uh, and i think it's just like <laughs> emblematic of the, the film. entire town has to weigh in on how they feel about the situation which, yeah which makes sense to some degree is kind of like you know these are the slivers of hope in the west sure but it's just it, essentially i guess they kind of feel like you know john ford films have all these like little grace notes it's these little details that kind of like you know weigh in over time over the course of the movie to really create this often like just earth like shattering effect dramatically fulci kind of has they're there but fulci kind of like is highlighting them for you he's like look what i did look at this you know um and it's just it's just sort of the the there's just a little you could dial it back a little bit here and there but what is here is often really kind of interesting and impressive uh like i don't you know but i don't know why there's a bad guy in this movie but there is uh which doesn't it doesn't really make any sense like it turns in the end our hero gets revenge against a guy for some reason just it's just thrown in and the the traveling elements are much more interesting than than that so I don't know, mm. the cannibalism subplot. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and that's the thing, right? It's like, it, we we talked about how, I, I love Fulci, but honestly, like, sometimes he, he just can't help himself. And the, the ultimate moment of Fulci can't help himself here is they have a scene where they, they kind of wander into this ghost town and, and one of the guys is dying and um, it, they, they have to eat rat and it's just, they're just like, ugh, gross and whatever. And, and then later because they they just kind of linger in in this ghost town this this guy that they're with who is he's he's a little crazy i guess uh he comes back and he's like i caught an animal i've got meat and they're like oh boy let's eat some food and we find out later that they they ate the ass of the guy who died and they have to show us this but it's it's like wholly inconsequential to everything. Like, yeah, it, I guess it sucks that you had to eat ass because you were real hungry and there's, you know, nothing going on. But it, like the, the real like emotionally resonant thing that happens during this whole ghost town scene is, you know, not, not only does this drunk guy there with die, but also the, the crazy guy just kind of runs off. And there's this really cool sequence where uh, Stubby and, uh, oh, geez, whatever the name of, of Lynn Frederick's character is, um, yeah, yeah, they're, they're walking through the town and he's, he's just like, yeah, you know, this guy could be anywhere and he's harmless, but you know, maybe he's in that building and he's looking at us or maybe he's over there and the camera's kind of jumping around and it's this, this like point of view, but it's not, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's just kind of like jumping between these POV shots that maybe it's him, maybe it's not, it's fucking brilliant and it's so fucking cool looking but also we had to have the let's eat ass scene before that <laughs> because it's Fulci and this is what he does. He will in one breath just completely bowl you over with the most beautiful shit you have ever seen. And then two seconds later, he'd be like, yeah, you just ate butt. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> also, hey, shout out to Lynn Frederick, man. Girl does not get enough credit. Is she a great actress? No. <laughs> Is she incredibly striking to look at? Absolutely fucking yes. Uh, you probably know her from this movie and Phase Four and maybe nothing else, but she was uh, she was married to Peter Sellers, and, and for uh, I think like probably four or five years, and then he died, 
And then because he died, she inherited all of his wealth and people got really mad at her because they thought she was a gold digger. And so she got completely blacklisted and like died of alcoholism at the age of 40. Very sad, talented lady. Yeah, it's one of those ones that you look at the bio and you're like, well, that kind of slides right in with this movie, doesn't it? <laughs> it is. It's like she's perfectly cast. This movie is her life, essentially. Just this, It has these all these moments of tenderness, but ultimately it's completely sad and bleak and just fucked. So there you go. <laughs> it's, it's great. Yeah. 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 What, what we we have fun here at Optimism for? Vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's just this one is a real trip and it's kind of makes me curious about his other spaghetti westerns to see what they're, they're like. Not as good. Not not as good. That, and that doesn't surprise me. This this one is kind of like like we've said before, it's kind of like just interesting. It it is it's such a wide net of a kind of narrative attempts. Like it's really trying a lot of things, um, and and more so than anything. Like I am reminded of kind of like Altman, and it's like I don't think Lucio Fulci has ever reminded me of Altman before. That's just not even a reference point mm-hmm. I would ever would have imagined. But it's it's kind of there, um, and it's got a great soundtrack. Like all of these movies do, actually, they're pretty much uh, soundtracks. You could you could hardly beat these guys. So yeah, it, it's just kind of a, a it's a really weird one. I think this was a nice survey. These three that gave us each like uh, three filmmakers that we are all familiar with, um, and three movies that we hadn't seen. But also, you know, you got like this comedy, this road movie, and uh, a like serious western. Yeah, and and who would have imagined the serious, the most serious one would come from Fulci, who is, like I say, other than like Don't Torture Duckling, is not really known for dramatic gravitas. That's not really what he does. Um, so kind of kind of a surprise out of that. I would I would have if I'd been betting beforehand, I probably would have betted on uh, Martino for that honestly, because I would have guessed that Bava would have been short sold short by the producers. <laughs> I can always feel with Bava that if he'd actually been given the money he was worth, he could have, like, he would have made something incredible. <laughs> but as Steve mentioned, he keeps just fucking saving the money and turning in other stuff instead. So it never happened. Yeah. Bava's biggest career mistake was not going over budget on a movie. Like, he should have just completely blown a budget at some point and then things would have worked he out and better. Michael Cimino should have got together. <laughs> he should have, can you imagine Bava's Heaven's Gate <laughs> shot for $2 million comes in two weeks early. <laughs> done. Oh my God. Yeah. That's, that's my dream film right there. All right, boys. Well, let's, uh, let's wrap things up here. Jack, what are you putting over this week? Okay. I'm, I'm going to put over, since we're on the uh, topic similar enough, I'm going to put over uh, Chess of the Wind, which is a recently restored Iranian film by Muhammad Reza Aslani from 1976. Uh, long unavailable. I think it only screened at a film, at like the Tehran Film Festival in like 1976. And then it was banned by the religious regime and it pretty much disappeared. And just there were like real cruddy VHS copies circulating. But uh, they found the masters in an antique shop somewhere, incredibly, and they managed to smuggle them out to get them restored. So there's a new restoration. It's going to get a Criterion Blu-ray at some point soon. Uh, But really beautiful. 
wonderful, incredible work of restoration. Really interesting film. It's uh, I, I say similar to what we're talking about because honestly, towards the end, there's almost this like weird Jalo esque sequence that kind of like it's a real slow burn story about kind of like a crumbling household of like there's power struggles and intrigue and people do not have the best intentions with each other. Um, and there's just and it so it's kind of like like last night is Soho esque. So yes, yeah. If that didn't just sap your will to live, it's like it's an incredibly slow moving film. And at a certain point, it was like, man, this is a little slow for my taste. Like I wish they kind of like you know speed things up a little bit. And then suddenly, just towards the end, this like almost Jalo esque sequence just starts happening, and you just suddenly start like wait, like what, what, how, how does this work? really kind of an interesting film um definitely recommend if you have a chance to see it in a big on a big screen it's it's really cool or you know it'll it'll get a blu-ray release so yeah chess of the wind it is a really really interesting curio and you know support film restoration it's it's cool that this thing is watchable again mm. sean what are you putting over this week oh i'm gonna put over a 1926 movie called faust by fw murnau um uh, a story that uh, a lot of us are familiar with did you get that from the kino sale but uh what a bargain <laughs> yes i did but uh murnau yeah. <laughs> 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 uh anyway um it, it's quite breathtaking and um it's uh, just one of those movies that uh i know it's kind of late in the in the silent era but um it's one of those movies where where it just kind of astounds you with the image making uh, that is just like this happened within you know thirty years the first thirty years of the medium and and we haven't we haven't reached those heights since um, in the last hundred years it, it's it's uh, amazing uh, just a beautiful movie T- tell you a guy you could use his budget yeah. for now <laughs> yeah I mean there's just so much good model work and just like it's so bold uh the visuals are so bold and it's just like there there are scenes that are like lit in a way that makes them look like renaissance paintings and obviously the actors uh play a part in that too with their very like pronounced faces um it's it's uh something to be seen mm-hmm. all right well you know I, I could put over a movie but i'm not going to I recently went to a Christmas party. There was a white elephant, and I, in, in the white elephant, obtained a bottle of Soul Boxer Manhattan. It is a pre-mixed <laughs> 72 proof Manhattan, and it tastes like dog shit. So I'm putting over my Manhattan recipe. Here's what you need. Uh, you need a two-to-one ratio, good rye whiskey and Dolan vermouth. Steve, can I use a different kind of vermouth? No. Use Dolan. Thank you. Uh, for the rye whiskey, what should I use? Don't don't overthink it. You don't need some $50 bottle, okay? You can use Wild Turkey 101 rye whiskey. It's like 23 bucks for a bottle. It'll treat you well, all right? So two-to-one ratio there, a couple dashes of orange bitters. You're going to want to stir this. You don't shake it, you fucking monster. You serve it neat, <laughs> neat. And with uh, Luxardo cherries, Steve, can I skimp on the cherries? Steve, can I use different cherries? Steve, I like these cherries better. No, fuck you, Luxardo cherries. And and you know what? Get a little of that syrup in there. That's okay. We like the syrup. And there you go. That's what a perfect Manhattan is like. So uh, 
No, you no taught me orange how. peel. What, no, I don't have. You taught me how. I don't, I don't have time for that, Jack. What What am I making? Come on. <laughs> what am I fucking taking the rind off an orange for for your benefit? You're, you're, yeah, you're not gonna lightly spritz no. spritz the, the rim there, or there anything. There will be no spritz. Uh, and again, Sean can back me up here. I wouldn't either. I never have oranges. I'm a terrible bartender. <laughs> But I make a good Manhattan, so there you go. Yeah, yeah, you told uh, me how to make Manhattan. Very, very committed to this recipe. So yeah, that's that's about it. But hey, if you have a great Manhattan recipe, or if uh, you know you have uh, death threats, comments, questions, marriage proposals for anyone in <laughs> Optimism Vaccine, you can email us optimismvaccine at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at Optimism Vaccine, and we'd love to hear from you. Also, in the description of this very podcast you are listening to there is a link that will take you to our patreon page and you yes you dear listener can give us money and that would be super helpful i think uh you know it's it's a great time it's christmas and you need a christmas gift so why not pay us money and then i will send you in the mail a movie that's right if you live in the continental united states and you donate money to optimism vaccine at any amount then you will get a, a a DVD or a Blu-ray or a box set or maybe a laser disc sent to your house. That's right, a fucking laser disc. You think I don't got laser disc lying around? Because I do. Jack, do I got laser disc lying around? You have one less <laughs> laser disc lying around than you did about two weeks ago. That's right. Because Jack had to go and have a birthday, so I had to send him a laser disc in the mail. Anyways, you'll get a movie if you if you subscribe to our Patreon at any level. And at higher levels, you can do things like vote on content that we do. You can dictate movies that we watch. Um, you can get your name shouted out on the air. So you could be the next Di Dustin, the next Ryan, the next uh, Sophie, all these people. That, that could be you. One day, that could be you. Just give us money, please, for the love of God. And uh, yeah, that, that would be great. So make sure you do that. Other than that, I think that pretty much covers everything. So you know what? Jake's not here. Jack, I'm going to give you the last word. That would be a terrible idea, Steve. <laughs>